Hey everyone, I'm Thanos Dabelis, and welcome back to The Greek Current, a podcast by the Hellenic American Leadership Council and Kathy Merini, where we highlight the top stories of the day every afternoon with analysis from guest experts, policymakers, journalists, and health staff. Turkish President Erdogan visited Ukraine on Thursday, where he reiterated Turkey's support of Ukraine and signed a number of deals on trade and defense. These include joint production in Ukraine of Turkish drones, expanding a partnership that has seen Ukraine buy at least 20 unmanned aerial vehicles from Turkey. During the visit, Erdogan offered to mediate between Ukraine and Russia, stressing he would do whatever he could to end the crisis. Expert Aaron Stein joins the Greek Current to talk about Erdogan's visit to Ukraine, Ankara's efforts to mediate between Russia and Ukraine, and the broader implications of the drone deal between Turkey and Ukraine for Turkey's relations with Russia, Ukraine, and NATO. Aaron Stein is the Director of Research at the Foreign Policy Research Institute and an expert on Turkey, arms control, and nonproliferation. Aaron, welcome back on the Greek Current. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Aaron, what was notable about Erdogan's latest visit this week to Ukraine? I mean, it's notable given the context that it's taking place in. The Russian buildup is substantial and considerable, and I think that there's a general consensus, at least in the U.S., perhaps it differs elsewhere, that the use of military force, perhaps even large-scale military force, is very, very likely. The Erdogan visit was the latest in these you know, high-level cooperation dialogues that they have with Ukraine. You know, the Turks have similar with multiple regional countries, and the agreements that they signed stemmed everywhere from a free trade agreement to locking in things that have already been taking place, particularly with defense cooperation and Turkish investment in the Ukrainian defense industry for the production of drones. One thing that we've also seen is Erdogan lean in to this role of mediator between Ukraine and Russia, and he stressed during his visit that he will do whatever he could to end the crisis peacefully. Do you think that he'll be effective in this role? No. I mean, I don't think the Russians have any interest in a Turkish mediating role. For the Russians, this really isn't about Ukraine. You know, this is about the broader security environment in Europe and the Russian demands for concrete concessions from the United States, as they see it as the guarantor of European security, sort of to like reset the rules of the road for how European security has gone since the end of the Cold War, but in particularly since 1997 with NATO's eastward expansion. So you know, Ukraine, unfortunately, is a folly here. The Turkish positions, it's actually very straightforward and easy to follow. You know, Ankara is a neighbor to both Ukraine and Russia, you know, across the Black Sea. They're all Black Sea powers. And they're standing at the doorstep of what will be like really like the first large-scale conflict in Europe in a long time. So Ankara is going to be hit if the Russians choose to go forward, with a number of negative repercussions, one of which is obviously economic fallout from any war, the increase of commodity prices at a time of Turkish economic weakness, you know, but also in dealing with the secondary challenges, perhaps, of a Russian occupation of Ukraine. All of those agreements that we talked about at the beginning of the show perhaps go up in smoke, maybe not. That will really depend on the Russians. And then a general remilitarization of the Black Sea, which the Turks would not like to see because they would like to keep things as calm as possible. So given all this, you know, it's in their interest to try and manage this conflict. I just don't think the Russians care what the Turks think at the moment. I want to focus on one of the deals that we mentioned earlier, and that's the deal that was signed between Turkey and Ukraine for Ukraine to manufacture Turkish armed drones. Can you talk about the growing military cooperation between Ankara and Kiev? Yeah, I mean, it really grew in 2019, largely, if you can believe it, out of sort of the ashes of the Turkish decision to purchase the S-400. You know, 
the American and broader sort of Western push to punish Turkey for the S-400 to include the removal from the F-35 consortium, you know, but also more broadly, you know, general Western discomfort about how Turkey uses drones in conflicts in its near periphery, looking at Nagorno-Karabakh, looking at Libya, and, you know, you see Western suppliers to Turkey, and these are commercial products. They are not controlled by export controls, but nevertheless, they are produced in Western countries. Some of these sort of like products that end up in Turkish drones and, and they find out that they're being used abroad, either through um, the release of drone footage or from the wreckage of drones in these conflicts, have sought to try and curtail Ankara's access to this type of stuff. Ukraine emerges as a potential supplier of engines for drones, for helicopters, for jets, uh, without some of the strings attached that come with being entangled with Western suppliers. So it serves Turkish interests. And obviously, from the Ukrainian side, you know, you get investment in what had been atrophied industries um, inside its country, particularly since the invasion of Russia and the cutoff of Ukrainian exports to Russia. And you get low cost air power, which up until the Russian buildup on the border was useful in the conflict it had with the Russian backed separatists, you know, and Russian forces that invaded the country in 2014. In a telephone conversation in December, Putin chastised Erdogan over Ukraine's use of these drones, calling it you know, destructive behavior and provocative. How do you see Turkey's arms sales to Ukraine impacting Ankara's relationship with Russia? I mean, not too much, so long as it stays where it is. You know, the Russians understand that Turkey's a big prize. And, you know, essentially Erdogan, I use the term fence-sitting because he's not exactly neutral. You know, the Turkish position is that Crimea belongs to um, Ukraine and the, the invasion of the Donbass was a violation of international norms. And so Turkey's default position on Ukraine is one of supporting Ukrainian sovereignty and broadly in line with the rest of the world, which is the Russian annexation of these two territories, was illegal. Now, with that said, you know, the Turks don't want to push Russia too far. They have very significant economic ties with the Russians. The one that everybody points to is the uh, natural gas relationship, you know, that comes across and you know, Turkish dependency on Russian natural gas and also extreme vulnerability to price fluctuations in energy costs and for their current accounts and also for the cost of their own citizens. But beyond that, there's also the um, agricultural trade and um, tourism trade, both of which we saw were really negatively impacted by a Russian embargo, i.e. sanctions, after the Turks shot down a Russian jet in November 2015. And so ever since then, you've had like, you know, an Erdogan that tries to just sort of sit on the fence in that he supports nominal Western moves in Ukraine. He supports broader Western policy in support of Ukraine. He supports the Ukrainian government through the sale of drones. But he's not willing to be coercive with Russia. And so he seeks to adopt this middle ground where he becomes a mediator and essentially goes neutral in these conflicts because he you know, doesn't stray too far away from either side's main priority. And in that sense, he tries to manage conflicts. And that's exactly what they're doing now with the mediator type efforts. Aaron, in a piece in December, you wrote that Turkey's sale of drones in support of Ukraine could have broader repercussions for Washington and NATO. What are some of these repercussions? And looking at the situation today, do you see those challenges still being relevant? So the challenges of the drone sales is one, you know, if those drone sales come along with long range strike and one of the drones that is rumored, and I think it's been pretty much confirmed that will be sold to Ukraine and perhaps co-produced in Ukraine is this larger drone called the Akunja. And it can carry a 250 kilometer cruise missile. So does the drone come with the cruise missile? And so 
this support for Ukraine, right? You know, contributing to those Russian insecurities that they themselves claim to have about like the NATOization of Ukraine, which is that while Ukraine is not a member of NATO, it's de facto becoming a NATO member, including with security guarantees. And so the Russians will need to preempt this in order to ensure that its own interests in its near abroad are accounted for. And this is the general sort of like baseline reasons, at least as described by Moscow, for the buildup along the border. My concern was, is if you start putting in long range strike into Ukraine, you are running afoul of Russian red lines, which they've clearly articulated, and that could be cause a, a causes belli for a Russian invasion. We have to be mindful of speed here. The Russians have put so many battalion tactical groups on the border that like an invasion looks to be imminent. You know, I know we're not supposed to use that word anymore, but like it looks to be close, whether it's in a week, two weeks or a month. I expect military action to come. And so that will preempt any sort of export of long range strike. But it is something that the U.S. has to be mindful of, which is the introduction of NATO allied long range strike in these places could lead to counter reactions that are more broadly detrimental to the alliance, again, which the U.S. basically guarantees the security of. You know, this is not to say that the U.S. should coerce Turkey into not selling these drones. I pretty much specifically wrote that in the piece because I believe it. But it's just something as we move forward in the real world is something that the U.S., as I said, will have to be mindful of. But now, you know, given the speed of where this is going and where I expect this likely to go, I don't expect long-range strike to play a factor here. The question I really have is that, like, we don't know Russians' intentions, but if the Russians do the sort of one end of the spectrum, which is a very large-scale invasion up to and perhaps overthrowing the regime, what is the outcome of that for Turkish interests? And what is the outcome of that for Ukrainian-Turkish bilateral ties? It's very unclear, you know. And so you could have a situation, Erdogan has invited Putin to Ankara or Istanbul or somewhere in Turkey for a summit in the next couple of weeks. You know, that summit could come, you know, as Russian forces are barreling down on Kiev. And so I'm just wondering how this is all going to play out, given that the Russians are dictating the tempo and are in control of the outcomes here. Aaron, you brought up the Black Sea earlier, and we saw recently Turkey's defense minister make statements related to passage through the straits into the Black Sea. How do you see this tension that we're seeing between Russia and NATO over Ukraine spilling into the Black Sea? Well, it's exactly on brand for the Turks. The Turks, you should expect to follow the Montreux Conventions of the Letter of the Law. That's what Hulusi Akar, the minister of defense, said in a recent interview. You know, and I don't think that there's any illusions or disillusions here in the United States, I can't speak for Europe, about what Ankara will do as it applies to the Montreux Convention. You know, Ankara is very rigid in its implementation, and again, that's in its interests, and that's actually in everybody's interests to keep that thing going. But you're looking at the potential after this for two type of force-on-force friction in the Black Sea, right? The U.S. has already moved Air Force assets to Latvia, but also into Romania. And Romania is asking for a permanent presence now. You will have, which we have had to intermittent and sort of regularly scheduled force-on-force frictions over the Black Sea, but not against the backdrop of a major invasion of Ukraine. So I expect there to be some tense moments, particularly between the U.S. and the Russians, but NATO more broadly and the Russians in the weeks, months, and days leading up to and following any armed invasion of Ukraine. As this applies to Turkey, you know, 
I don't expect the Turks to ask for any visible display from the U.S. for reassurance. I think that that will be limited to Romania into Poland, into Latvia, and a few others. I expect both the Turks and the Bulgarians, again, neighbors, and on the Black Sea to sort of fence it, go neutral. But I don't expect the Turks to really throw up a stink if the U.S. wants to move per Montreux Convention under a NATO flag, naval assets up into, say, Romania or places like that for joint exercises, which raises another sort of potential friction point between, I guess, East and West, the U.S. and Russia, and NATO more broadly in the Black Sea. So I wouldn't expect this conflict to sort of like only be limited to Ukraine. Not that I expect there to be a large scale war between the U.S. and Russia, but it's going to get dicey. And I think we need to prepare ourselves for that and then to figure out once it gets dicey what the options are and how to manage those types of tensions. Aaron, thanks for joining us on The Greek Current again. Great speaking with you. My pleasure. Thank you very much. In other news, Greece will allow tourists with a European vaccination certificate to enter the country without having to show a negative test for COVID-19 from February 7th, the Tourism and Health Ministries said on Friday. Under the rules now in force, air passengers have to show a rapid antigen test taken 24 hours before arrival or a PCR test no more than 72 hours old to enter Greece. But a valid digital European Union vaccination certificate will suffice from February 7th, Tourism Minister Vasilis Kikilia said, adding that the country expects summer tourists to start arriving from March 1st. Greece has shown remarkable resilience, sending a message of safety to our country's visitors in the past two years. It will do the same this year, said Kikilias. Finally, police raided multiple soccer supporters' clubs in the Greek city of Thessaloniki late on Thursday in the wake of an attack linked to violent fan rivalry that left a 19-year-old man dead. The raids were carried out at 13 venues suspected of being used for organizing attacks, and police seized ice picks, flares, pitchforks, and baseball bats in a raid at one venue. The Saloniki resident Alkis Campanos died after being stabbed and severely beaten late on Monday. The killing has shocked the country and drew strong condemnation from political leaders. How can we let our streets, parks, and squares become the stage for violence between rival gangs, endangering the safety of our citizens? Greek President Katerina Sakelaropoulou wrote in an online post. That wraps up today's episode of The Greek Current. Thanks for tuning in. Mm-hmm.